Hey everybody, fantastic episode of The Bitcoin Show. We are joined by none other than Dan Held, a Bitcoin legend, OG, someone that is incredibly knowledgeable and just really reasonable when you hear him speak about Bitcoin. It's actually his second time on the show. We talk about Bitcoin White Paper's 15th anniversary. We talk about the differences between March 2023 and today when it comes to public perception of Bitcoin, progress of building on Bitcoin, the Bitcoin ETF situation, and just about everything in between. It's a fantastic episode of the show. I really, really think that you all will enjoy it. And as always, the show is done in partnership with Trust Machines. So check out Trust Machines at trustmachines.co or at Trust Machines Co on Twitter. Leather Wallet is one of the newest products from Trust Machine, self-custodied, open source and audited Bitcoin wallet. You can check that out at leather.io. Anyway, hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Bitcoin Show. If it is your first time listening, we do the show every week at 2 p.m. Eastern time right here on Twitter Spaces. It's also available on Apple and Spotify podcasts. It is a weekly show that is designed to discuss all things Bitcoin, past, present, and future. The show is done in partnership with of course, Trust Machines. So we want to take a quick minute to give Trust Machines a shout out. Trust Machines is growing the Bitcoin economy by building applications all on Bitcoin and its various layers. Recently, we've talked about this on the show before, Trust Machines announced the launch of Leather, which is the Bitcoin wallet creating a bridge between the Bitcoin network and emerging layer two solutions. Leather is self-custody. It's an open source and audited wallet. It allows users to secure and manage Bitcoin, Ordinals, StackSell2, and other Bitcoin secured assets like BRC20. For more info on Leather, go to leather.io. And of course, check out Trust Machines at trustmachines.co or on Twitter at trustmachines.co. Uh, I'm your host of the show, P.O., here with my co-host, Trevor Owens, an investor in Bitcoin startups, partner at Bitcoin Frontier Fund, CEO of Ninja Alerts, and of course, host of The Ordinal Show right here on Twitter Spaces. Trevor, how's it going, buddy? Yo, going great. Super excited for this. Dan is the man, not just because that rhymes, but he's an incredible mind in the space, great communicator, great writer, great, has a ton of experience, especially around you know the whole crypto space, understanding Bitcoin's adoption. It's my favorite topic to talk to him about, and I've learned a lot from him, so excited to dig in. Again, even though I get to see Dan quite a bit here on this show, and also I got to hang out, hang out with him in Korea, we were on a panel together, so Dan, really great to talk with you today. Yeah, guys, excited as well. Um, love the sticky tweet that you guys put up here. You know, that was uh, the San Francisco Bitcoin meetup in t- spring 2013, back when uh, Bitcoin was not cool. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm really thrilled to jam today. I'm really excited about the topics we've got, so thanks for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Anytime. Of course, um, you know, the other co-host of the show, Aubrey Strobel, marketing partner at Trust Machines, host of The Observation, uh, you know, former head of communications at Lolly and very talented Bitcoin content creator in her own right. Could not make it today a little bit under the weather. So we hope that Aubrey uh, feels better soon. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, today's very special guest, second time on the show. Uh, so we're incredibly excited to have him back. He's currently an advisor at Trust Machines, also the former director of growth marketing at Kraken. Uh, part of the original 2013 crypto meetup group in San Francisco that we just referenced, which included the founders of Coinbase, Ripple, Kraken, and others. And that's pinned to the top, like Dan pointed out. He's a Bitcoin educator, over 600,000 followers on Twitter, a must follow for anyone wanting to learn about Bitcoin. Second ever guest on the Bitcoin show back on March 22nd earlier this year. And definitely someone that has a major part on my personal Bitcoin journey. I've consumed a ton of podcasts from Dan. Uh, really, really excited to have Dan Held uh, back on the show. Dan, how's it going, man? 
Doing great, guys. Yeah, it's super excited tonight. Uh, sorry, today. Um, you know, it's it's these these topics that we've got going on are kind of near and dear to my heart. So yeah, excited to dig in. Absolutely, and we'll we'll do a little recap in a bit of what we talked about last time because I think it'll it'll be interesting to reflect on what we talked about in March earlier this year. Obviously, not that long ago, but a lot has kind of changed since then, and we're in a much different place now uh, as far as like the market goes. But quickly, you know, because you know today is the Bitcoin white papers. 15th anniversary. Dan, you are a Bitcoin OG. You've lived through various cycles. Um, a lot of people listening, you know, myself included, uh, got into crypto way after you did. Um, what sort of sticks out to you now, 15 years after the Bitcoin white paper, 2023, going into 2024, so much going on, you know, Bitcoin ETF on the on the verge of approval, Larry Fink calling Bitcoin a flight to quality when, you know, a few years ago, uh, he basically called it a, a tool for money laundering. What Reflecting on all this time you've been in Bitcoin and the 15 year anniversary of the Bitcoin white paper, like, you know, where, where to begin, Dan? What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, this is this is what winning feels like. This is uh, you know when we were first into Bitcoin back in the day, it was we were a bunch of rebels. You know, it was a uh, we were considered lunatics. Uh, the even the idea that it would someday even have an ETF or or be mentioned by institutions was was wild. So the fact that BlackRock filed for an ETF, the fact that all these institutions are coming in and that Bitcoin is recognized globally as like a real money, we're winning. And this is what winning looks like. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, there's like that meme going around of like early Bitcoiners being about freedom and liberty and now they're like, you know, win, it, win ETF. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Like, did we think that Bitcoin was just going to remain an underground drug money for their, its entire existence? Or did we think that it would be both a money for, you know, free transact, you know, be, be a money where you can freely transact with anyone you'd like. And it would be a gold 2.0 um, where anyone in the world could store wealth in it. And it, it would reflect, you know, a new sound money, a new store of value asset. You know, it's weird that people think these things are mutually, mutually exclusive. And I think that meme is like super weak where it, it basically says like we've we've lost Bitcoin's lost its ethos because it's being adopted by BlackRock and institutions. No, that's exactly what winning looks like. Um, the alternative scenario is that it would remain niche and esoteric and never be globally adopted by the biggest wealth managers in the world. So, yeah, again, this is what this is what winning looks like. And I want to hammer that point home just because I think that that meme that's been passed around lately is super weak. Yeah, I mean, look, I couldn't have said it better myself. And uh, this is, you know, Bitcoin, the new like revolutionary financial monetary technology. It's not like a punk rock band or something that ended up, you know, it's not Bob Dylan going electric, right? It's it, the the fact that it's getting adopted by the biggest financial institutions in the world is, is absolutely huge. So I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, if you want to talk about one year anniversaries, at this time last year, we were days away from the Sam Bankman Fried and FTX debacle, which obviously doesn't actually have anything to do with Bitcoin itself. However, it did, you know, give people, um, a kind of it left a sour a taste in a lot of people's mouths um, that maybe were tourists in the industry or weren't really uh, deep in the industry at all. And you know, Dan, as someone that's been in Bitcoin for as long as you have, I'd imagine you've seen a lot of kind of tone changes from mainstream media, tone changes from uh, the world of finance. 
when you look at the past year since the FTX debacle, you know, through now, uh, what do you make of the kind of change in the way media covers Bitcoin, the amount of coverage it gets, the, the, the way people write about Bitcoin? Like, could you give us some insight on that? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I would say it's incremental progress. So in the beginning, you know, 95% of articles were just totally biased and just absolute trash when it comes to journalism. Uh, these were uh, objectively wrong, uh, misquoting people. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there was just, you know, a lot of mainstream press was just looking for dunks on crypto, like any way they could dunk on it in any sort of way. So any failure, any any weakness at all. Um, you know, nowadays, I think we've got, you know, again, it's incremental progress. I think, you know, it's about half good journalism, half bad journalism. You know, good, journal good journalism-wise, we've got like McKinsey over at CNBC, Jacqueline over at TechCrunch. They do a phenomenal job, I would say, for mainstream press of, you know, they're on the ground. They're hanging out with crypto people. They understand intimately, you know, Bitcoin versus crypto. They understand intimately the different players in the space. Um, so I think they do a great job. I want to call them out because they've, they've both done great work. Um, you know, when it comes to, yeah, like I said, 50-50, you know, because on the other side, you've got Wall Street Journal uh, where they, you know, Nick Carter did a great job of calling out their Hamas funding calculations uh, being totally incorrect. And instead of retracting the story, they dug their feet, they dug in their heels and refused to retract it. And I think, you know, that was a very common thing that I discovered in 2013 through 2018 era is journalists literally knew they were lying and did not care because in their heart, what they thought is, you know what, I'm directionally right about this. So it doesn't matter that I'm lying about my article because overall I'm right, which is pretty wild to, to experience, you know, and, and then you realize that they're doing this in every other industry as well. It's pretty disheartening to realize almost all news you read is pretty garbage at the best and intentionally dishonest, you know, at the worst. So yeah, I'd say nowadays it's about 50, 50. There's, there's some great journalists and there's some, um, there's some pretty mediocre journalists that are intentionally dishonest. So it's never been better coverage wise, but it's still extremely disheartening to fully see and understand how most journalists operate and, and most of them don't operate with integrity. So, um, which, which is also hilarious because remember when they had the whole thing about fake news where they, uh, they're all whining about social media and other publications outside of them are all fake news and that they're real news. And I'm like, no, I know what you are. I, I know what you've written. I've seen, I've seen what, you know, a good portion of you all do. Like this is not fake or real news. It's just humans who write and have internal biases. And those are always reflected in their writing, whether it's a blog influencer or mainstream media publication. Yeah, great level of detail, Dan. Appreciate that. And maybe we can get a tweet pinned that you actually put out recently. I, I believe it was directed against uh, the New York Times, exactly what you're talking about. It It kind of goes, oh yeah, it looks like we have it print, uh, pinned to the top so people can kind of check out uh, your thoughts in written form if they'd like to do that too. Um, you know, Dan, you've been around for a long time in this space and so you've been through a number of cycles. Um, for people that are that just went through their kind of first uh, major you know, bear market or their first full Bitcoin cycle, cycle, um, any sort of like advice, any perspective that you can give um, if people maybe really struggled with the past 12 to 18 months um, and, and maybe some some tips for uh, if they have to deal with something like that again, how to maybe deal with it a little bit better? Yeah, great question. You know, I think 
First and foremost, whenever you enter an investment, whenever you have a position open, you should think about very deeply, why do I believe in this? And, you know, with Bitcoin, you should have your thesis behind Bitcoin very much solidified, where you're like, look, I bought Bitcoin because I believe it's going to be gold 2.0. If it does become gold 2.0, the price at which it becomes that would be worth, let's say, half a million to half a million to a million dollars. It reaches the market cap of gold. Um, you know, let's hypothetically say that that is your investment scenario that you've come up with. So when you enter this investment, you've already pre-designated, and let's say it does hit that, so your investment thesis was proven true. You then calculate, you know, do I want to sell calls? Do I want to lend it? Do I want to sell it? And so you have the exit, exit strategy planned before exiting the position. So this disciplined way to think about investing will remove some of the more emotional feelings that you have when, when holding. Because when you hold and you don't have a strong conviction, then it's going to be really hard to hold it when it goes down. It's going to be hard to hold it when it goes up because as it goes up, you're like, wow, I doubled my money. I should sell. But doubling your money is silly. For example, venture capitalists don't sell their positions when they double their money. They're in the investment for a high risk, high reward sort of calculation. So they're looking for 10Xers, 100Xers. Uh, you know, thinking about Bitcoin should be similar. You're not in there for a 2X. You know, Bitcoin, if it achieves gold 2.0 status, should be half a million dollars, $2 million of Bitcoin. And I think that is a lower bound case long term. Um, again, you should each discover your own investment thesis for Bitcoin and decide how long you want to hold it. Second, don't invest more than you can lose. I think that's probably the, a really big error that a lot of folks make where they get really stressed out or they have to panic sell because they need to go pay the bills and they have to panic sell at the worst part of the market when the market's at its lowest. <laughs> so I think, <clears throat> you know, being really disciplined with cash flow and liquidity is critical. Also, never trade margin. Do not trade on margin. The swings in this space are absolutely insane. Uh, you know, I, I've actually had a margin position open at one time. I had an unchained capital loan where I borrowed dollars against my Bitcoin using my Bitcoin as collateral and then I bought more Bitcoin, like a, like a good Bitcoiner. But, uh, you know, I survived because I looked at all historical drawdown percentages and I had over collateralized my position to such a degree that I could survive massive drawdowns. So I was on margin and I survived pretty massive drawdowns, but I over collateralized it to a crazy degree. And after that, I promised myself I'd never do it again because the level of stress was just way too high. So yeah, don't ever go on margin. Just buy, hodl. Um, of course, you know self custody. You know different exchanges may come and go. You don't want your funds to be to be there on the self custody side of things. <coughs> sorry, I got a little bit of a little bit of a cough here. On the self custody side of things, hold on. <coughs> hold on one second. Yeah, no, no worries at all, Dan. No worries at all. Appreciate you coming on, even though you're a little bit under the weather. And and phenomenal, phenomenal tips there. Uh, I've never been a margin guy. That that is a, a badass story there about over collateralizing and still having this stomach a huge drawdown as Bitcoin, uh, you know, can kind of create. But yeah, take your time. Uh, no rush to come back to the mic. Yeah. So you know, and then on the self custody side, you know, make sure you put your backup on titanium. Uh, for example, I've used CryptoTag in the past. And then also use a hardware wallet, you know. So that that's kind of your A to Z of how to to buy your mental mindset of hodling, um, your investors' mindset, and all the way to uh, storage. 
I, yeah, you know, really great advice, Dan. And uh, I did not know, I don't think I've ever heard you tell that anecdote about, uh, you know, having to stomach that drawdown. That's, you know, great, great little piece of insight. Um, when I listened back to our show from earlier this year, it's actually kind of wild to listen to the, some of the topics that we were talking about. This was in March. So this was not that long after, uh, you know, ordinals, the release of ordinals. And questions that we were talking about is how uncertain Bitcoin's future could be, uh, you know, when it comes to like uh, the decentralization of mining, uh, you know, fees, um, you know, new trends creating higher fees like or, uh, ordinals. We talked about mining with 100% renewable energy. Um, and I believe it was right after we had our little mini bank collapse too. So it is really interesting to think about where we were at with Bitcoin then and where we're at now. Obviously, the price is higher now. Than it was then, uh, but Dan, has anything really uh, like has there been any material change in the Bitcoin ecosystem? Would you say since March, or is there just more interest right now than there was then because of the price going up? Like there was a big spike in interest back then because of ordinals, and now uh, you're starting to see more interest because the price is going up. But has there been any other material change, maybe besides the the ETF being on the cusp of being approved? Yeah, so you've got two pretty big narratives. One is the ETF being approved, um, and then uh, ordinals. So I think ordinals are represent a, a bigger topic that would be like more like Bitcoin DeFi or like uh, building on top of Bitcoin. I think that this narrative inside of crypto is one of the most underappreciated narratives I've ever seen in the space. First and foremost, if we think about Bitcoin as like a app development platform, it has the most users. You know, and when we look at app developers on iOS and Android, they're building on there because they have all the users. Bitcoin has the most users, most unique users. It has the most liquidity. It has the most assets that could be locked in TVL. Um, when we think about Bitcoin as a, the potential to be unlocked through DeFi, it's massive. It is the, one of the biggest opportunities ever in crypto, actually the biggest opportunity. And I think that a lot of people considered Bitcoin to be this old, dumb chain, which is not true. Uh, Bitcoin can do a lot of different things. Of course, can it do what EVM chains do? No. So, like, Bitcoin obviously can't do everything Solana and Ethereum can do all the cool, shiny stuff. But it's not a dumb old rock. It can actually do quite a bit. And that's where, you know, when you look at, like, DLCs, Lightning, Stacks, there's a uh, Liquid. Uh, there's all sorts of ways to unlock value of Bitcoin. And that's where I think there's tons of different applications. There's tons of different companies, you know, from the ones I consult for, like Trust Machines and and uh, Taproot Wizards to, uh, you know, like Atomic Finance. Like there are all sorts of different Bitcoin DeFi protocols and products coming to market that I think this is going to be super huge. And I think that Ordinals made that really popular and made that narrative, I think, much more real um you know when you look at nfts on top of blockchains like being sold on blockchains or like nft communities ordinals are already the number three nft community in crypto uh, if you look at the total volume traded in 2023 which ordinals only were created in 2023 it's around half a billion dollars which is number three after uh, ethereum and solana i mean that's incredible year one of launch of nfts on top of bitcoin it's already the third most popular nft platform that's huge and, you know, ordinals aren't exactly like they're they're a little bit clunkier as well, because it is just that with how Bitcoin's architecture works versus like Ethereum. Um, so that's where I think 
these represent very clear market signals that yes, we have found protocol market fit for people wanting to use these. So I would say, you know, between when we first talked and now, I would say that ordinals become more and more popular, more and more accepted culturally. And then, you know, ordinals, I would say, basically in this conversation also mean kind of an, an all-encompassing um, term for, you know, like DeFi or building on top of Bitcoin. So I think all of that, the over, ordinals really move the Overton window to make it an interesting, acceptable conversation. So, you know, people are looking at things like CTV and, um, you know, BitVM. There's a lot of really cool new proposals coming out where you can unlock, you know, really, really awesome functionality with Bitcoin using, um, you know, like new op codes and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think I think there's a kind of a whole renaissance happening now in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And then when we look at the more macro narrative side, Bitcoin is moving inversely to, you know, the uh, mainstream equities. We're seeing bonds sell off and we're seeing equity sell off. You know, bonds have had their worst year in, I don't know, was it 70 years or something? We're seeing the really pretty, you know, crazy macro cycle play out, a very long macro cycle of debt play out. And Bitcoin is very well positioned, I think, in, as a store value asset, as a gold 2.0 narrative for this moment. Uh, and right now it's trading like that. It's moving inversely. It's going up while the market's going down. And if that continues and that narrative picks up steam, it becomes reflexive. That narrative does become why Bitcoin's price is going up and it goes up because of that narrative. And it sort of feeds upon itself. So I would say, you know, and this is all leading up, and I don't want to front run the question around the halving, you know, but the halving is coming up in April. And that certainly will, you know, market timing for our own crypto market cycles couldn't be a better setup. Dan's done so many podcasts, ladies and gentlemen, that he knows the next question that's going to come before you ask it. Absolutely love it. Talk about a pro. Uh, and should mention, since you did go into detail on ordinals, over a million dollars of volume in the past 24 hours on ordinals. Uh, very interesting to see volume return. Can't say that I'm surprised. Obviously, Trevor is much uh, better versed in the ordinal space than I am. Trevor, anything to add on ordinals since Dan touched on it? And uh, you know, before we kind of talk about cycles and talk about the having, which I, I know a lot of people listen to Dan Held podcast for those questions and, and Dan's responses, but any, any questions or anything to add on the ordinals front, Trevor? No, I think um, Dan, made, Dan made great points. I mean, it's really interesting how things are playing out right now with the market going down and, and Bitcoin going up. We saw in the COVID cycle, it was just like, you know, the, the crypto space at large was more seen as like the, the higher risk, you know, place to go because the interest rates were so low. I think this recent move from the 27k mark to you know up to 35k where it peaked was um i think it's woken a lot of people up i think that's why we're seeing higher ordinals um activity i think that people are i've noticed the twitter engagement in the bitcoin spaces is better in the past few weeks and i'm just curious you know uh dan what are your what are your thoughts kind of going into the end of the year here i mean i ex expected you know we would be just completely flat kind of going into maybe february march but it seems like we're getting an early pickup here Curious if you have any, uh, you know, theories on, you know, is it is it the the one hypothesis I heard is like it's like the 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 war going on, you know, um, in the Middle East right now. Kind of these uncertainties is a, is a um, catalyst for Bitcoin to move to move. Curious if you're thinking that this is a pattern that we've seen before. Or this is something completely new. You know, you touched on the idea of this kind of forming a new narrative as well, which. All of us in this space, of, you know, we we're hoping for the super cycle, you know, last cycle. It wasn't the super cycle. There needed to be a lot of stuff that was garbage cleaned out 
now it's been cleaned out, you know, what does the future hold in your mind? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think history, you know, rhymes, it doesn't repeat itself. So with each, you know, the structurally, so let's first talk about structurally though. So technically what's going on here with the halving is that the Bitcoin issuance schedule drops in half. So instead of X amount of Bitcoins being produced, it drops, you know, to half of X. So, um, and that, that occurs at each halving. So each four years that occurs approximately four years. It's actually based on number of blocks, but it's about four years. So, um, you know, structurally, what that means is that there's less coins that are being minted. So it's not really an inflation rate in a way. I mean, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. It's just more of an issuance schedule initially because Bitcoin has at its peak, uh, you know, when it, once it issues all the coins, has no inflation rate. So it's more of the issuance schedule. And so structurally, that means that less coins are hitting the market by miners that need to be sold. So if demand stays the same and supply decreases, supply hitting the market, then we should see the price start to trickle up, or at least that's the narrative that most people believe going into these uh, halvings. Um, you know, what's funny is that people go, well, you know, an efficient market hypothesis, uh, you know, the halving should be priced in. And my argument is that, you know, for two, two arguments, one, efficient market hypothesis is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It's not prescribing what's going to happen into the future, it's just describing what the market believes now. And that can't be inaccurate because otherwise the price would be something else. Um, and then second, you know, the price, the having is, is priced in for those who are paying attention, but it's not priced in for those who haven't paid attention yet. So yeah, like, you know, 0.1% of the population gives a shit or even knows what the having is the rest of the world doesn't even care or think about it. So no, it's not priced in for the rest of the world. Um, you know, typically what we see though is the having occurs and then, Six to 12 months later, that's when we break all-time highs again. And so I think that, you know, are we going to front run this or is this going to, you know, are we going to have a different cycle than previous cycles? Maybe. I, I don't know. You know, it's, it, it, when it comes to short-term price predictions, it's always super tricky. And I'm pretty bad at it, typically. I'm, I'm good at longer-term predictions, but pretty bad at shorter-term predictions. Um, you know, shorter-term, like, if we have an ETF approval, yeah, Bitcoin's going to print like a 30 to 40% candle in one day. You know, that's going to be huge. Um, that's going to be absolutely massive. I don't know when that's going to occur, but if that occurs before the halving, then boom, we might be up, you know, close to all time highs again, uh, which would be unprecedented, but also not under, also not ex uh, unexpected. You know, a really big event like that warrants price appreciation to that degree. So, you know, I'm, I'm very sure that whenever that happens, the price will, will pump that hard. Um, you know, outside of that, you know, again, the macro setup is pretty, pretty spectacular if, if the gold 2.0 narrative can take off of Bitcoin being a safe haven asset. Um, it, as we see like distrust with governments, as we see uh, debt become bigger and bigger and, and, and harder to pay off, you know, I think that this sets up a really good narrative for that gold 2.0 thesis. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think macro wise, we're in a pretty great environment. It, you know, if if Bitcoin had traded like it did in 2020, where, you know, as a risk off asset where everything sold off, then I would think we're not in a great position structurally. But for, you know, for the memetic gods, you know, for some reason we are trading inversely to um, the, you know, S&P 500 dropping and the rest of the world dropping. So, you know, I think that this is a great setup so far. Um, yeah, TLDR, I think we're going to have a normal cycle. You know, all-time high occurs after the halving six to 12 months later. However, ETF, such a big market moving piece of information that if that occurs, 
we could see maybe a, a uh, you know, a, a maybe a front running of that narrative or a uh, an earlier cycle than usual. Very well put, Dan. And the quick question, because I, you know when I used to listen to your podcasts uh, that were recorded in 2020, uh, you talked about super cycle theory, and I know that you just mentioned right there at the end of your answer that you think that we'll have a regular cycle. Do you think that there's any future, you mentioned that you're better at long-term predictions, is there any future where that super cycle theory does manifest? Like, do you think that's still on the table, that's, that that's a possibility? Yeah, you know, the, basically the super cycle theory is around, uh, does a local crypto cycle, the four-year cycle, does that map up with a very long-term, like Ray Dalio puts it, you know, like a long-term structural cycle, like a long-term structural debt cycle. And uh, this cycle is much more, I think, at the right time for that event. You know, we're seeing bonds sell off, you know, treasuries are down 40%. Uh, you know, that, that's unprecedented and it's never occurred, I think, in like 70 years or even see, I've even seen charts where bonds have sold off more than the founding, like more, more bonds have sold off harder than any other moment in the entire history of bonds in the United States. You know, st stuff like that where maybe this is the moment where that bigger macro cycle finally occurs. So yeah, I think the super cycle theory was just, it wasn't wrong, it was just early of like, will the four year cycle map up with a very large structural cycle? And I think this is much more, um, you know, I think lined up there. You also have something else that could, could really accelerate this as well, which is DeFi on top of Bitcoin. Um, when we look at speculative activities on top of Ethereum, a lot of it was yield farming, NFTs, and those type of activities bring in different sets of market participants like nfts bring in more creative folks um, but they need the underlying asset ethereum to play those speculative games and that's where if we bring those speculative games to bitcoin we get more adoption in the next bull run whereas bitcoin's primary adoption loop during a speculative cycle is just spot trading so i think that um you know DeFi and bitcoin plus the bitcoin cycle plus the macro environment could set up the super cycle. Um, a lot of people gave me flack for that too, because they're like, oh, it never happened. But, you know, I was describing what would happen if a large macro cycle mapped up with a local four-year crypto cycle. So until that happens, then the cycle, the cycle, you know, hypothesis can't be tested. So uh, if that happens this time, we'll, we'll see if that, that turns out to be true. Incredibly difficult to predict, obviously, and things can, uh, such radical changes are really hard to see coming. I mean, for example, Larry Fink calling Bitcoin a flight to quality when it used to just be referred to by him as something for money laundering. You know, Dan, you've mentioned uh, the, you know, the comparison to gold, and obviously Bitcoin is compared to, to gold, like it's a digital gold all the time. But I've heard some other, you know, hardcore Bitcoiners start to talk about the global bond market. Do you think that there's a future where uh, Bitcoin's market cap starts to eat into the global bond market also? Yeah, certainly. Um, well, I mean, just look at treasuries. Treasuries and government, you know, government bonds are a massive asset class and are considered to be the safe haven asset, which we know is not true. And so, yeah, I mean, just eating into those alone would be massive. Um, you know, does Bitcoin disrupt commerce? I think that's a little bit of a weird one. I think some Bitcoiners take Bitcoin's, you know, hyper-Bitcoinization or Bitcoin becoming the world reserve currency. I think they take that to an extreme where they think that all debt will cease to exist, which I find very implausible. Um, debt existed during gold standards. Uh, debt is a fundamental market instrument where people who have money will lend it to those who 
need to borrow money, um, and the ones who need to borrow money will pay them a rate, an interest rate, that reflects their both, both their risk profile and their time preference. Um, I don't see why Bitcoin as a sound money would ever change that. Now, well, Bitcoin certainly, Bitcoin will certainly, I think, decrease the amount of indebtedness in the market, but it won't it won't eliminate debt. You know, I think uh, in a sound money system, uh, you know, you can't get you know sort of a free lunch setup where you you borrow a really cheap debt that's below you know inflation, uh, where you know you can essentially get free money. You know, I think that you know structurally, if you don't have the Fed, you know, fiscal and monetary policies that are that disrupt the natural market cycle, you'll have debt cycles that play out as they should. Um, you know how these debt cycles play out and how typical so you know uh, boom bust cycles will still occur after a bitcoin standard we'll still have uh very speculative cycles where debt issuance becomes higher people invest more money in riskier and riskier assets until the market collectively realizes there's been an overextension of credit and then the market pulls back and those who have parked their money in cash will then have an opportunity to scoop up assets that are at a discount uh, this is how money has worked throughout all of human history. And so uh, Bitcoin doesn't disrupt the normal market cycles. There will always be speculative boom-bust cycles. Uh, I just think that in a Bitcoin standard, they'll be much more mild, uh, given that there's no centralized mechanism to decrease that local, you know, small recession. Uh, you know, right now at the Fed, what they do is they tamper and try to manipulate these smaller cycles, which then create mega cycles that are, that are much bigger and much harder to control. It's kind of like a forest fire. You can suppress the little forest fires for a long time, but eventually all that dead brush has to burn. And so Bitcoin's hypothesis and you know, as, a, as a more libertarian, uh, you know, Austrian school of economics theory is that you shouldn't interrupt the market cycles because they have to occur. They have to clean out the bad debt. And so that's what Bitcoin will do is it will bring us back to just having much more, I would say smaller local cycles that, um, don't get too large. They don't turn into giant forest fires because they have these little fires that burn all the bad brush versus letting all the bad brush accumulate and then becoming much more structurally uh, a big issue. Wonderful analogy. And you mentioned uh, the Fed. When we had you know some macro folks on this show, maybe three, four, five months ago, Joe Consorti, uh, Joel McCann, uh, you know, really, really sharp guys when it comes to discussing you know the Fed and, and market cycles like you're talking about. Uh, you know, at that time, Bitcoin, uh, you know, as a forward-looking asset, it wasn't seeing you know weakness in the Fed. It, it was anticipating you know more uh, like hawkish behavior from the Fed. But now, you know, it does seem like a rate cut. Uh, could be coming relatively soon. I mean, when, when we had Raul Paul on our other podcast a few months ago, he actually predicted a, a, a rate cut before the end of the year. And at that time, I was like, wow, it's an aggressive prediction. Now I'm like, well, it, it might happen. I don't know. It, it could happen. I just feel a lot uh, feel that that's more, a lot more realistic now. I'm just curious, how closely do you pay attention to the Fed? And you know, do you, how much do you think that, that the Fed and interest rates are going to matter for Bitcoin this cycle? Because when you talk about the last cycle, People bring up the low interest rate environment. They they bring up COVID and the money printing and everything like that. They say this time, you know, that's not going to be there in the same way. Um, so, how much do you pay attention to those factors? You know, going into this cycle. Well, it certainly matters, and I think what the only difference is is there were a reflexive loop built on the Fed's moves that impact Bitcoin. Um, is it 
when market when rates go up, Bitcoin goes down, or is it the opposite? And right now, Bitcoin's moving opposite of the traditional markets, as uh, you know, as the Fed's ratcheting ratcheting up the rate. Um, you know, riskier assets look less and less attractive, and so they're trying to rein in um, excessive lending. They're trying to rein in the market and, and try to cool it off. Uh, if Bitcoin's moving inversely to that, that means Bitcoin is is behaving like a risk off asset. So, um, you know, obviously, yeah, what the Fed does matters to Bitcoin a lot now. In what direction is very much narrative dependent. Um, right now, you know, and then you know, who knows? Bitcoin's narrative could switch. And by the way, Bitcoin. Its value prop is still as an immutable, immutable money with a credible monetary policy that's ex in, with an asset that's super hard to seize. So Bitcoin is still gold 2.0. It never stopped being that. When I talk about narratives, I'm talking about what the market is perceiving it as. And so, you know, we could very much see that switch, though, as, as if the Fed starts to ease off rates. You know, we see we could see Bitcoin start to trade as a risk on asset. Um, it just really depends on what what the market and the retail traders perceive it as. Um, and some of this, again, is kind of a chicken or egg thing. Price goes up, people then meme it as a risk-off asset. And then, you know, that, that sort of narrative kicks in. Um, and the inverse could happen as well. Um, Fed cuts rates, people start to meme that, oh, Bitcoin's a you know, higher beta tech stock. And then Bitcoin starts to trade, trade that way as well. So just it's very narrative dependent. But yes, um, long story short, what the Fed does matters a lot to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not isolated by itself. It's very much subject to market forces. Appreciate the response, Dan. And, uh, you know, you, you we talked a little bit about ordinals and, and the fact that ordinals have only existed since the beginning of this year. Um, and we've talked a bit about, you know, building on Bitcoin. That was a big topic of, of conversation when we had you on in March. Now, you know, closing in on the end of the year and kind of getting out of the white hot hype cycle of ordinals at the beginning of the year and coming a little bit, you know, more down to earth. You know, what do you make of the current state of affairs when it comes to builders culture on Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Um, has Ordinals just had, you know, this overwhelmingly positive impact? Like, what, what to you, where are we at now compared to where we were at earlier this year when you're on the show in March? I mean, so much more tooling has been built out. There's a lot of really cool features that people are discovering and unlocking. So, you know, I would say like the, the ecosystem when it first started, of course, it was so, it was so new that there, it was really hard to interact with it. It was hard to take a look at collections. Um, you know, now that it's just so much easier for folks to use, uh, it's being integrated into more and more wallets. So yeah, we're, we're looking at something that was, I think, very niche and very kind of like technical uh, to something that's being much more user friendly. And I think we're seeing, we're going to see that continue to occur where, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be surprised to see, you know, ordinals uh, added to Ledger and, and MetaMask and other tools as well. So you know, that's just kind of like a, I would say, a continued progress forward of more and more integrations into different products and, and services. Yeah, love to hear it. And obviously, we've talked about the partner of the show, Trust Machines, and some of the products uh, coming out of there. And obviously, Dan, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, you know, is an advisor, consultant, consultant for Trust Machines, among other companies. Trevor, any questions for Dan? You know, surrounding building on Bitcoin, maybe uh, anything that happens in the next couple of years when it comes to Bitcoin. Any thoughts on that, Trevor? Yeah, I, I want to actually ask Dan something different. The topic that I'm always uh, interested in talking to him about is his theory about you know. Uh, speculation and adoption. And so maybe Dan, you could uh, kind of just like give an overview of it, but I, I'd love to dig in deeper on that in terms of, 
you know, really what this technology is, is capable of and how, it, how adoption works and kind of your latest theories on that and also just the experiences that you've had over the years in the space. Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, I, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to bring up is, is somewhat uncomfortable, but it's the objective reality and we cannot ignore it. Bitcoin's primary adoption has occurred in 2013, 2017, and 2021 during the speculative cycles. Now, a lot of people find this triggering because they're like, well, Bitcoin is solving real problems. You know, adoption occurs through people buying coffees in fucking Venezuela or some shit like that. And while I find that virtuous and great to see, that is a retention metric. That is not an acquisition metric. Acquisition comes through speculative loops and speculative cycles. And so when we look at how speculation on Bitcoin works, Satoshi actually put this very eloquently, and this is almost verbatim, where he goes, as the price goes higher, people become more aware of Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin in anticipation of it going higher. He's describing a speculative loop through FOMO mechanics. And so as we have accidentally discovered, that's how most Bitcoin adoption occurs. Now, people come for the money, they come for the speculation, but they stay for the sound money. That's the retention metric. And so actually most educators in the space mistakenly think that they are helping new user acquisition metrics, but in reality, they're helping a little bit there, but they're helping most in retention. They're actually helping retain and convert speculators to hodlers, and that's their value. Um, let's put it this way, like the Bitcoin standard launching, we didn't see user adoption 10x when that book came out. We've never seen a podcast. We've never seen a spike in user adoption from a podcast. Um, what we have seen, though, is I think you know the hodling become much harder, where or much much more uh, with stronger conviction, because before I mean there wasn't even YouTube channels or, or podcasts on Bitcoin back in 2013. It was hard to really believe in it because it was hard to understand. Um, whereas nowadays there's so much content and great great ways to understand it and learn it that we convert these speculators to hodlers. I think at a greater rate than ever. Um, and so, yes, the, the uncomfortable truth is that that's how Bitcoin adoption occurs through speculative mechanics. That's how humans work. I wish we didn't work that way, but that's how we work, you know? And so, um, as we've seen this occur, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin is, speculation is good for Bitcoin, but it's silly for other things. And what I observed with NFT, at NFT NYC though, was that these NFT hodlers were buying you know, an NFT and ETH. And they were like, yeah, I bought it for 0.1 ETH and I flipped it for 0.3. And uh, I'm like, cool, awesome, congratulations. I'm like, well, what do you think about proof of work versus proof of stake? Or what do you think about the monetary policy and the, and the NFT participant? They were like, I don't know what those words mean. And at first I scoffed and I laughed and I'm like, ah, what a silly, you know, NFT hodler, right? But then I realized if I were to go ask most Bitcoin holders, they probably would, wouldn't know either. They just bought Bitcoin because their buddy bought it and they're holding it for speculative reasons. And so that's where Ethereum has more speculative games on top of Ethereum. They have NFTs, yield farming, and those pull in different audiences and different people. Uh, Bitcoin pulls in a certain type of person. And so if we think about it from like a speculative casino mechanic, the Bitcoin casino, the underlying native token is Bitcoin. And there's only a few games to play. There's like uh, basically spot trading. So you've got like craps. Um, the Ethereum casino has all sorts of speculative games to play and the underlying you know, token there is Ethereum. So when people go play yield farming or other, other types of games, they're playing with the Ethereum token. And when they walk out of the casino, they'll have a little bit left over Ethereum tokens left and then they end up hodling those. So 
I believe the reason why I care about DeFi on top of Bitcoin, one, I believe in freedom of money, so people should be able to do whatever they want with their money. So if they want to speculate with it, great. Two, these speculative games bring about more user adoption. And, you know, Bitcoin hodlers, I, uh, the hardcore Bitcoiners, what I don't really understand is they see adoption occurring on Ethereum and Solana where people are, are speculating and, and playing those games. And if those games existed on Bitcoin, they wouldn't be over there. So that's why I care. That's why I think it's important for Bitcoin. And uh, Trevor, you raised your hand a little bit ago. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I and I'm curious if you have any like analogies to like the meat space world in terms of like new currencies, new economies. I mean, it, capitalism kind of drives the world, right? Like, I mean, the, the the colonists of the of the United States of America came over, you know, taking a risk for potential upside. Like, I'm curious if you've seen any analogies, kind of like across history, that maybe could convince some of the people who really don't want to believe this thing. Yeah, it's a great question. I actually started to research this a little bit when it came to equities, bonds, and other types of financial instruments. Um, equities were actually considered quite controversial. Um, they were created back, I believe, it was like fourteen or fifteen hundred to finance uh, different boat excursions. So these merchants would go out, and the trips might take three months to a year, and they needed someone to fund it, and so uh, people would pool their money together in in the form of equity pull their money together and receive equity for these uh, these individual ships that would go out and um, you know go trade. Now of course you know some of the more famous uh, companies that became quite large, you know Dutch East Indies, the East Indies Company, these became enormous and there were entire uh, you know speculative cycles that occurred just because of a singular company. Um, the East Indies Company, the British one, in fact, grew so large and the financial crisis was so great from it that the crown refused to approve new uh, publicly traded equities for 100 years, um, which is pretty wild. And that's actually why and what led to the New York Stock Exchange becoming the world's predominant stock exchange is that they didn't care, that they kept approving stocks to be listed, whereas the British uh, felt that they should um, you know, reduce speculative um, speculative, uh, you know, speculation occurring in their stock market. So speculation isn't going anywhere. It's old as it's old as time. You know, humans were likely speculating on beads and other things as well way back in the day. So speculation will always exist. New financial financial instruments will be created. You know, you've got other things like bonds and and, and credit default swaps and other types of uh, financial instruments where like. Uh, you know, bonds and options are like really critical market features and, and options were first created as a way for rice farmers. Uh, They're also called samurai options, rice farmers to hedge their, their crops, to hedge their bet. So, you know, these instruments are really critical and, and initially were all, almost always viewed with skepticism. Um, and I think that, you know, when we look at Bitcoin and we look at you know, these new types of uh, financial instruments like yield farming, like AMMs, you know, it's first viewed with skepticism or NFTs are viewed with skepticism of, oh, this is just speculative fervor. Um, same with tech, tech stocks, you know, 2000 tech bubble, everyone thought tech was dead. Uh, tech was not cool. You did not want to work in tech in the year 2000. People were probably like, oh, hey, do you need, do you need a job or, um, you know, you need to sleep on my couch or something. You know, now, you know, tech workers are considered the most well-paid, wealthy people in the world. So, yeah, every new asset type usually met with, uh, you know, skepticism because of the speculative mechanic. But 
Uh, that's where this is as old as time and speculation is not a dirty word. Trevor, follow-up question for Dan. And by the way, Dan, I was talking about this with someone else. Uh, right now, software engineers like, you know, kids working at Netflix and people that work at Facebook and Google, you know, that that's considered cool. That's considered a, a great job because it's super stable. You can always find a new job for whatever reason you had to get, you know, you got laid off. You make a ton of money, right? You, th those are some of the highest paying jobs when you kind of look at the quality of life. Uh, and the weirdos now are the blockchain engineers. Th those are the weirdos. So that's where we're at right now. And we'll see where we're at, uh, you know, in five to 15 years uh, on that front. But Trevor, go ahead, follow up question. Yeah. So now kind of taking that, that, um, that idea and kind of uh, applying it to like for the builders in the audience and the builders out there, this is, this is something that we've observed directly with our fund. I mean, we have plenty of, of data and evidence on this and, you know, when it comes to people looking at Web3 use cases, like people have talked about, you know, decentralized identity. Um, they've talked about, you know, reputation. They've talked about, you know, privacy is a big theme. We've invested in companies in these various use cases, but not only has nothing really taken off in the space uh, for that in terms of Web3, you could argue like Signal from a you know, privacy perspective, but utilizing blockchain technology, nothing has really, you know, reached unicorn status in that space. And we've seen all of our companies in that space, you know, who execute really well, even struggle just to raise, to raise funds from enough investors who have interest to, to kind of, do you believe that in, a, in an essence, like all roads lead to speculation in a way? Like I recall, you know, in Ethereum, the initial NFT loaning platforms would come out and the founders would try to, you know, create loans that were very conservative. They were like, Hey, this is what your NFT is worth. So let's, you know, you know, restrict the options in terms of what people can do so that both parties are going to be happy. Then you look at a platform like Blur, who is like, let's make this thing PVP. Like, let's make it so that people can like, let's ramp it up. Let's make it so that the variance and outcomes is, is as high as we can, as, as broad as we can possibly make it. And then that gained a ton of adoption. And, you know, I've seen other founders where they have, you know, protocols that, you know, consistently cr create value, but they don't have any uh, but because it's like everybody wins, the, the upside is limited because there's no, there's no downside risk. Like, do you think that this is just like the parallels? Like this is, this is the purpose of financial markets that financial markets, the whole purpose is kind of broadly defined, you know, spe speculation and that the core use case, maybe for the next 10 years or so until this technology becomes so ubiquitous, uh, that's just part of everyday life that, that, it's going to be replacing the financial markets and that, you know, sort of all roads lead to people seeking the highest alpha in this space. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think I'm, this is somewhat controversial. I mean, I think that the future isn't just totally DeFi. It's like always going to be a mixture of CFI and DeFi. That's just due to things like real world, real world assets, having real world physical, you know, monopolies of violence by governments that can oversee those assets and will dictate who owns the asset ultimately, right? Like, I don't care if you put it on a blockchain, if the police can just come and take it, it doesn't really matter, right? So, you know, there's always going to be the mixture of CFI, DeFi um, as kind of, you know, transferring in ownership of assets and mar market structure. Also, I think, I think that, you know, when we look at DeFi, like obviously I'm incredibly bullish on DeFi as a whole. I think it's super cool and really fun. We've basically eliminated counterparty risk. However, if we're speaking with full, I think, honesty and full just transparency, like the amount of hacks that occurred with DeFi 
the protocol risk is incredibly high. And if we look at total TVL locked now and all of the money that's ever been stolen out of DeFi over the last couple of years, it's a gigantic percentage. And if we extrapolate that to 20 years of financial history, like, dude, I mean, that, that that's an incredible amount of theft and hacking that would occur. So, you know, DeFi, I think, is our objective. Uh, currently, it's incredibly fragile in terms of, like, it, it works with extreme market conditions, but the fact that a zero day can be found at any time, I think, is pretty scary. Um, you know, certainly there are structural issues with CFI as well. I'm not trying to say CFI is better, but I, I certainly don't think we should paint DeFi as like this perfect utopia. It's always going to have a zero day exploit risk. Um, and there's some game theoretic ways to mitigate that. But, you know, again, it's our, it's our ultimate goal, but I think the world's going to be a blend of CFI and DeFi. Um, and I think, you know, scarce digital assets like NFTs and Bitcoin, those are here to stay. Uh, market has demanded it. Market has validated it as, as having protocol market fit. And, you know, I think it's, I think, you know, NFTs are quite a simple thing to, to grok for most people. They understand how playing cards work. They understand how Pokemon cards work and, and other scarce, you know, antiques, et cetera. So, you know, these, these assets are here to stay, but I, you know, whether we eat the financial system or they eat us, I think it's going to be more of uh, DeFi eats a little bit of the financial system, but, but certainly not all of it. Very reasonable take, Dan. Uh, we always appreciate you having, uh, you know, coming on this show. Uh, absolutely electric conversation. Obviously, everyone should follow you on Twitter if they're just listening on the podcast. That's at Dan Held, at D-A-N-H-E-L-D. Any other calls to action for the audience, Dan? Anywhere else you want to send people? Yeah, great question. So, you know, first and foremost, if you haven't bought Bitcoin yet, buy a little bit. Um, you know, put in 1%. I think 1% is a very small amount. Uh, it's if it goes down, 1% of your net worth is not worth a lot. But when Bitcoin moves 10 to 100x, that could represent a lot more of your portfolio. So get off zero. Um, once you get it, make sure you self-custody. Definitely check out Ledger and CryptoTag. Those are two great tools to use for that. Um, and then finally, if you want to learn more, you know you can check out my website, danheld.com, and check out my blog where I write about a bunch of different Bitcoin topics or the Held Report, my newsletter. Outside of that, definitely recommend you check out Trust Machine's blog. They've got a lot of great topics on Bitcoin DeFi. So on there, they've covered a lot of topics from like DLCs to Lightning. So if you're looking to begin your journey on the Bitcoin DeFi sector, check out, check out the Trust Machine's blog. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure you subscribe to Dan's newsletter. Get off zero. Buy some Bitcoin. You heard the man. That was his. First. That's a real Bitcoiner right there. I asked him what call to action for the audience, and before mentioning any, you know, blog or, or newsletter, he just tells you to buy some Bitcoin. Uh, 